Uh, for those that don't know me, my name is Jimmy Fowler. I am the executive pastor here at Redeemer Fellowship, and it is my uh, honor and privilege to look at God's word with you this morning. You know, I grew up in this area, uh, went to Haines, uh, spent some time overseas, spent some time up north among the Canucks where I met my wife. But one of the things maybe you uh, uh, don't know about me is I quite enjoy movies. Movies is kind of my jam. I love just kind of sitting back, watching a movie, not having to think. That's probably the best thing for me. And I, I like a wide range of different genres. I, I don't like horror. That's not really my thing. But like, you know, thrillers and dramas and action and comedies. Like, these movies I really, really enjoy. And there's one standout actor that can handle it all. And of course, I'm talking about uh, the great Denzel. The Denzel Washington is amazing. He could do anything. He is so versatile. You could put him in a drama. He's great. You could put him in action. He's great. It doesn't matter where he's at. The great Denzel can make it happen. And in one of his earlier films, uh, uh, he plays this, this father that his son is sick. His son is dying. And uh, it's called John Q. And, and so he's trying to figure out, okay, how do I, how do I take care of my son? You know, and, uh, we, we can't afford it. Insurance. There's things that are just not falling into place for us. I got I to gotta do whatever it takes for my son to live. You know, and as one does, he, he, go ahead, he you know, got a gun. He sat there in the hospital. And, and he took some people hostage. And, and so, you know, whatever you think about the message of the movie that it was trying to portray, I think we can all agree that Denzel was amazing and stunning in that film. But there comes a point where, where he realizes there's only one way to save my son, and that's that I must die. I have to give of myself so that my son may live. And he comes to this realization, and, and he starts to prep everybody, and, and he sits his son down, and he starts to give him what he believes are his last words to his son. You know, he's got this opportunity. He wants to, wants to tell him all the things that, that he thinks, hey, I'm not going to be able to do this in the future. I'm not going to be able to come alongside you. I'm not going to be able to teach you these things. So, so here's, here's what you need to do. Here's what it means to be a man. Right? Here's what it means to be a man of integrity. You know, make sure you take care of your mom. Tell the truth. Be honest. You know, uh, take, take care of your mom. Take care of women. Like, treat them right. And so he's going through what, what he believes are his final words. You know, and that, that notion of final words is, is interesting. You know, the older I get, the more I'm, I'm sort of thinking through, okay, what are those last words that I want, I want my loved ones to remember me by? What are those things that I want them to, to hear from me just in case it is my last? What is it that I want my, my kids to reflect back on? What is it that I want Michelle to hold on to? And so these, these notion of, of last words really got me thinking. There's some famous last words that, that we have. We've got uh, Jane Austen, as she's writing to her sister, she just says, I want nothing but death. Those are, those are her last words. Uh, Bob Marley, Bob Marley, the great Bob Marley, last words, money can't buy life. Oscar Wilde, he was, sit, he was staying at the Left Bank Hotel and before his death, and he was, he was there, and he was trying to stay mostly positive, but he really hated the wallpaper. He really hated the wallpaper in his room, and so his last words were, either that wallpaper goes or I do. Soon after his death, they, they changed out that wallpaper. 
Uh, the French nun, Louise Marie Therese, in 1732, she's lying on her deathbed, and I guess she passed gas. And her last words, a woman who can fart is not dead. So I guess she passed gas and then passed on. Sorry. The actor Humphrey Bogart, I should have never switched from scotch to martinis. That's, that's true. And then, of course, typical Winston Churchill, I'm bored with it all. In our text this morning, we're looking at, at some last words that, that Paul wants to impart upon the church in Ephesus. He calls the church to himself what he believes are, is going to be the last time that he's going to see them. It's going to be the last time that they're going to have the opportunity to meet. And he's got this love for the Ephesian church. I mean, it's one of the places, the only place that he spent years ministering to them and teaching them. And so he calls them to himself so that he can impart these last words, or what he believes might be his last words. As we read later on in, in Timothy, he, he does see them again. And what I'd love for us to see this morning as we go through our text is this. That the call of the believer is to daily embrace the ministry and the message of the gospel. If there was one way to kind of sum up what Paul's really trying to push out there and, and to leave and to impart upon these elders in Ephesus, it's this. is that the call of the believer is to daily embrace the ministry and the message of the gospel. So turning with me now to verse 17. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Let's pray. Father, I, I thank you for your word, and I, I, I thank you for the opportunity to, to hear your word and, and listen to your word and to sit under the teaching of your word. I pray that your spirit would be here, Lord, that you would be renewing our minds and softening our hearts to receive any correction and, and any encouragement that is due. Father, I pray that you would be working on our hearts, that, that we may leave here being changed that you would show us areas in our life that, that need correction, that you, would, that you would convict us of our sin, and that we would be encouraged with the, the good news of the gospel. We pray this all in your name. Amen. So the call of the believer is to daily embrace 
the ministry and the message of the gospel. And we're going to kind of look at this in two ways here. We're going to be looking at the ministry of the believer. That'll be our first section there. We'll be looking at the ministry of the believer and then the message of the believer. Now, I know as we're looking at this text, it's, it's, even as easy, it's easy to say, well, well Jimmy, this is, this is a text that's been, uh, uh, Paul is talking to the elders there in Ephesus. Is this not just for the leadership of the church? Well, yes, there is some truth here. Where, where as, as pastors and as elders, as overseers, we are called with, with the spiritual well-being of the flock of God that, that he has given to us, that we protect you, that we teach you, that we admonish you, that we correct you, that we encourage you. But this is also true for each and every single one of us just as believers, that we are then called to, that as we study God's word, as we pray, as we, as we uh, live life together in community groups or in discipleship groups or as one family of God, that we would be encouraging one another, ministering to one another, and proclaiming the message of salvation and grace and the gospel to one another. And so when we look at this, we look at this as a ministry of all of us as believers in Christ. And so when we look at this ministry of the believer, Paul, we have this great illustration. Paul has given his life, and we've got uh, um, instances throughout Scripture that, that point to how Paul, the minister, lived his life. And he kind of he touches on it a little bit here. It says here in verse 18, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time, from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord. You know, Paul uh, elsewhere kind of uses that same phrase, but he talks about being, being a slave to God. Paul wrapped his identity in who he was in Christ, that he saw himself as a, as a slave to God. He was beholden to God, that he was called to be a minister of that gospel, that as the Lord led, he would follow, that he would go to where he wanted him to go. Even in this text, you see, he's like, I don't know what lies before me. I'm not sure, but I'm compelled by the Spirit. And previous, where, where he says, I want to go on to Spain. I want to go to these other places. But the Holy Spirit, though, has, has told me not to go yet. I'm not able to go yet. I'm being compelled by the Spirit not to go. And so Paul saw himself as, as when he served the Lord, that he is a servant of the Lord, that he is in the service of Jesus. Galatians 1.10, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. And so anything and everything that he did was in service of his king and his Lord, Jesus. And as he was serving the Lord, we're also then called to serve others. And Jesus told us that in Matthew 25, that as we, we serve each other, we are serving him. Matthew 25, 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and fed you or thirsty and give you drink? 
And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to, the, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. So Paul saw his life as one of, as being a slave to Christ and to serving, and to serving others. And we're called to that because each of us have our own unique gifts and abilities. You know, scripture talks about that as one body of Christ, we are many members and each of us has been uniquely gifted. And that gift is not to be kind of selfishly withheld where we just kind of hold on to that to ourselves, stick to ourselves, just show up and leave all by ourselves. But that we would utilize those gifts, these God-honoring gifts that he has given us so that we could then bless others around us. Not just that we could encourage them, that we could uplift them, that we can, we can help them come to know the Lord even better and stronger, but that we would also then, as we are encouraging them and serving them, that they, though, may be confronted with the reality of their sin so that they could repent and confess and turn away. See, brothers and sisters, each and every single one of us has gifts that God has given us, and we are called to utilize them in the local assembly within the church. How, though, how then are we using our gifts today? How are you using the gifts that God has given you to encourage one another, to admonish one another, to bear one another's burdens? As, as servants of Jesus, as we serve him, we serve each other. And he continues, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears. Paul served with humility. And, and sometimes I read scripture and I'm like, is Paul really like the humble type, you know, imitate me while I imitate Christ? I'm like, eh, that's a bit of a strong thing. But for Paul, when he was saying things like that, he was saying, look, there is nothing left in me. There is nothing good in me. There is nothing really about me. I'm only trying to imitate him. So imitate me while I imitate him. Look to Jesus. And so Jesus then started, uh, Paul served with humility. He recognized his identity as a servant of Christ. And we must find the importance of humility in understanding our identity. You know, the Christian church today, especially if you look online, and that's kind of the hard thing is when you look online, you don't really see a lot of humility among Christians. You see a lot of kind of anger and boasting and arrogance and, and slander. And unfortunately, this small sort of subset Makes it, it balloons, it makes it look like it's, it's everybody else. But I believe, though, the vast majority of believers, at least the ones that, that I'm in contact with, like you, brothers and sisters, understand the importance of humility. Understand that we are humbly coming before our God and before each other. Understanding our identity. And he did this preaching repentance and faith. Paul had a commitment to proclaiming the gospel of grace because he knew that was the only message that mattered. The good news of the gospel. And that as, as we understand this, as, as we embrace the role of repentance and faith, it shapes our identity in Christ. It helps us to understand what our posture should be and how we should interact not just with a, a holy and just, magnificent God, glorious God, but with one another as believers in Christ. And so he served the Lord with all humility and with tears. 
He served with compassion. He had compassion for those around him. He had compassion for a lost world. He had compassion for those within the local assembly that were, that were maybe led astray or didn't quite grasp it. You know, we, we want to long to see people saved because we know what lies before them. We know what judgment lies ahead. And so we want to long to see people saved and to see those within the church grow in grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 2.4 For I wrote, I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, not to cause you suffering, not to make you feel guilty, not to kind of bludgeon this over your head, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Brothers and sisters, as we proclaim the gospel to those, we proclaim from this a position of love, loving the individual, loving the sinner, loving our brothers and sisters so that they may turn from their sin and embrace their God and their salvation. And Paul did it through suffering. And he knew, we understand that this was going to be a part of it. We read in Acts 9, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And Jesus himself told us that as believers, the world would come against us. The world would not understand us. The world would press and hate us for our values and what we stand for. And so we should not be shocked then when the world pushes against us and we go through seasons of suffering and trials and tribulations. But Paul was determined to follow God's leading even in the face of challenges. And we must pursue this in our own lives that despite obstacles, that despite suffering, despite trials, that we would pursue proclaiming the gospel of grace to a lost world and to one another. And then Paul shows more that he did not, he, he understood the importance of this. Verse 20, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public. So whether in, the, in that hall of Tyrannus that we read in 19, in public or from house to house, Paul did not fear man. Paul did not hold back. Paul did not mince his words. He didn't try to kind of sugarcoat it. He didn't leave sections of doctrine out. If someone was, was living in sin, he called it out. If someone was living in unbelief, he pressed in. If someone had a misunderstanding of the gospel of grace and of works and justification by faith alone, he called that out. He did not fear man, for he knew that this was the very gospel of God for the salvation of others. And he preached the gospel to everyone, as we see in verse 21, testifying both to Jews and Greeks of repentance, uh, Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So he made sure that everyone around him heard. He did not hold back. He did not waste a moment. Which then led, leads to verse 26 and 27. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. That's interesting language. I, I am innocent of the blood of all. And he kind of says that earlier, though, in Acts 18. In Acts 18.6, he says, Son of man... Uh, in Acts 18.6, he used that same language of, I am, I am free of your blood, that your blood is not upon me. And this language is actually found back in Ezekiel. 
It's this watchman language of Ezekiel 33. It says, Son of man, speak to your people and say to them, If I bring the sword upon a land, and the people of the land take a man from among them, and make him their watchman, and if he sees the sword coming upon the land, and blows the trumpet and warns the people, then if anyone who hears the sound of the trumpet does not take warning, and the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be upon his own head. So this language here, Paul is saying, listen, I've declared it. I've told you. I've given you the whole counsel of God. I have not backed away from this. I'm good to go. My conscience is clear. But brothers and sisters, I think of people in my life, and I'm sure you can think of people in your lives, where we have maybe shrunk away from declaring the whole counsel of God. Maybe a little bit afraid. How is this going to change the relationship? What are they going to think of me in this? Are they going to think I'm just some, some uh, uh, kind of weird or off as a believer? Or that's a bit of a, that's a tough doctor. Do I really want to talk about, about hell and about, and about that, uh, that the lifestyles that they're choosing is sin? Brothers and sisters, we are called to be bold and to declare the whole counsel of God to those around us. For it is for their own good that they themselves may repent and confess. And that, that right there is the message of the believer. That's what we're called to do is to proclaim this gospel of repentance and faith in Jesus. You see, repentance is it's the foundation of our own spiritual growth and restoration. And we see repentance throughout Scripture. You know, no one the flood. There's this call to turn from this wickedness, turn from these ways. Or that there would be that punishment for it. Or in David's Psalm 51, he writes this. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. Wouldn't it be easy? Wouldn't that be easy? You know, there's sometimes, especially for me, for someone like me that, that grew up as a Roman Catholic, you know, the notion that, that I've, I've committed a sin, I've done something wrong, now I just kind of, I go into the room, confess it, and now I just got to say a couple, couple prayers and things are good. Just tell me what I need to do to be made right. What sacrifice do I have to make to make myself right with God? And here David says, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. I would do this. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering, or I would give that. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise so repentance is this broken and contrite heart. And Jesus urges, when he comes out on the scene for his public ministry in Mark 1, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. We are called to repent. In the prodigal son, we see the prodigal son returning. This repentance that he's, he leaves this faraway land, this land that signified his, his sin and his, his debauchery, and he returns back. To the Father. He repents of his sin and he comes back to his Father. Throughout Paul's letters, this call to turn away from sin and to embrace Christ's righteousness. You see, the essence of repentance is this genuine sorrow for our sin and turning towards God. And this repentance has, has a purpose behind it, it's got this restorative nature about it. 
First, there's this, this relationship, this vertical relationship, uh, this vertical reconciliation with God as we see in 2 Corinthians 5. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So, so those of us who, who are uh, uh, those who are far away from God, who are enemies of God, who are haters of God, have been brought near, and we've got this reconciliation with God. But and as we repent, but we've also got this horizontal relationship with those around us, healing broken relationships with those who, who have sinned against, that we have offended. And there's this spiritual growth that as we repent of our sins, we grow in sanctification because as we repent more and more, we should be turning away from our sin more and more and pursuing holiness more and more. And that should show itself in the fruit of the Spirit, this transformative uh, uh, nature that happens within us in Galatians 5. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. So this pur- the purpose of repentance is it's restorative with God and with one another, that we should grow spiritually in our walk. And then it's a witness to the world around us because we reflect God's grace and mercy to others. others. Others outside the church and those within the church. And we demonstrate this authenticity of our faith that shows itself in repentant living, daily repenting. So then how do we repent? How do we repent? And we, we think of it as just kind of sort of saying, I'm sorry. That's part of it. But godly repentance. There's a difference between godly repentance and worldly repentance. Worldly repentance is, I'm sorry. It's almost like, I'm sorry because I was caught. I'm sorry because now that you know. I'm sorry that that kind of hurt you. Godly repentance really goes deep, deep and cuts deep into one's, one's being. And it's been talked about with the five C's. Now, I didn't come up with this. It's out there. The five C's. If you want to give me credit, I'll take it. But it's the five C's of repentance. First, conviction. Recognizing sin's destructive nature in our lives and the effects of that in the lives around us. We must recognize sin's destructive nature in our lives and those around us and have this need for a change. That we don't want to continue doing this. So we recognize that this is sin, this is harmful, this is destructive. I must stay away from this and get away from this. It must change. That's conviction. Next, contrition. Where we have this deep sorrow. This deep sorrow over our sin. How it has affected us and how it has destroyed others. Deep sorrow for our sin and that, how it has offended God. First and foremost. This deep sorrow of offending God and affecting those around us. Thomas Watson in his his book, The Doctrine of Repentance, says this. Either sin must drown in the tears. uh, Yeah, sorry. Either sin must drown in tears or the soul must burn. We have this deep sorrow for our sin or over the effects of our sin. Fifth, 
Confession. Openly admitting sin before God, and if necessary, others. Where we go, it's funny because we, we confess our sin to God, and that's kind of a hard one to do from time to time, at least for me. And I find that kind of silly just for me because it's like, well, I believe he's all-powerful and all-knowing, and uh, he, he's, he's everywhere. How is it that he would not already know that, that which I've already committed? But we do. The first step is we confess, openly admitting our sin before God. We, we would, uh, uh, as the Puritans would say, that we would confess our uh, 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 how do you go? particular sins particularly, like personally. Like we ourselves would make sure that with the sins that we have committed, as the, the Lord brings them to mind, as the Holy Spirit brings them to mind, that we would then confess them, each and every single one. And if necessary, others. Whether it's those that, that we have wronged, whether it's those that we've sinned against, or whether it's those that maybe uh, the Lord has put into our lives for accountability and encouragement. So we're convicted of our sins, conviction, contrition, confession, and then conversion, turning wholeheartedly towards God. Doing that 180, embracing his forgiveness like the prodigal son, leaving the faraway land and coming back to God. So we turn wholeheartedly towards God, embracing his forgiveness. And again, that can be hard because sometimes we want to be punished. There's something kind of good of like, I deserve this punishment. I deserve your wrath. I don't deserve your forgiveness. But we turn wholeheartedly towards God, embracing the forgiveness that he has given us. And finally, commitment. Intentionally living in alignment with God's word and his will. So we don't just go back to our old ways, but we commit ourselves to living according to his word and his will. Conviction, contrition, confession, conversion, commitment. You know, repentance is, is throughout scripture the old, and, and, and in the New Testament that we must repent of our sins. But we also, though, must place our faith in Jesus. And when we talk about faith, we, we see in Hebrews 11 this, this assurance of things hoped for, this conviction of things not seen. You know, we trust in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That God himself came, put on flesh, lived among us, and that he lived this perfect life of obedience to God's will and God's ways. A perfect life that you and I could not live in. And we read in scripture that he, though, represents us. So he represents us and he lives this perfect life of obedience. And we then receive this righteousness that's credited to our account. But because God is a holy and just God, he must punish sin. And so he himself, Jesus himself, takes that punishment for our sin. The just wrath of God. And he takes it upon the cross. And he dies and three days later is raised. And he gives his final words to go, therefore, to all nations, proclaiming, baptizing them all in the name of the Father, Son, and in the Holy Spirit. And he ascends and is seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding on your behalf and mine right now. You see, we believe this, church. We believe this. This is our salvation. This is the good news. This is the joy that we have. That though I deserve the punishment of God, 
Though I deserve to be eternally separated and condemned from him. That in his grace he has chosen us. That he has taken us. That he has changed our heart of stone into a heart of flesh. That we may seek after him, want him, desire him, want to be close to him. That our communion with God would grow. And that he took the punishment. And that one day he will return. That he will return and gather up his people. And that we would then live with him for all eternity, basking in his glory. Free of pain, free of suffering. This is the faith that we have. This is the faith that we proclaim. This is the joy that we, that we share and shout to the community around us. And we, have, we, we believe in this. And we have this assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not yet seen. Throughout scripture, you, you see others that have exhibited faith. You see Abraham's faith in, Ro, uh, 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 in Genesis, Romans 4, 3 talks about this. For what does scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He believed in the word of God. Noah's faith, Noah's faith in, in God in, that he would be promised this deliverance. We read in uh, Hebrews 11. By faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Jesus, it was central in, in his message, his calls to believe in him. You see, John 3.16 and then John 14.1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Believe in what I'm saying is true. Believing in what I'm telling you is true. And if that's not enough, here are some miracles as signs that invite faith in me. John 20, 30 to 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Throughout scripture, we also see Paul, the apostle Paul talks about this theology of faith, that we believe that we are justified by faith alone. Galatians 2.16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law. It's not by trying to make ourselves more righteous. It's not about making ourselves better. It's not about cleaning ourselves up, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. None of us can clean ourselves up enough. We are only justified by faith, and we trust in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We trust in his work, not ours. And we live by faith in this. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Brothers and sisters, we have this, this wonderful faith that we've been given. We're called to repent and to believe, to repent of our sins and have faith in Jesus Christ. And this faith is a gift that's been given to us by the Holy Spirit. And this faith is an active response to what God has done in our lives. And you see, repentance and faith are inseparable they are inseparable in our lives. 
You see, repentance without faith is useless. And faith without repentance is just futile. We must have both repentance and faith. And we must embrace these daily in our walks with God. Because sanctification through faith is a lifelong journey. There are moments every day where I must confess and repent, or repent and confess of my sins, and to embrace and believe in the finished work of Jesus and what he has done for my salvation. You know, faith is this, it's foundational to our own personal relationship with Christ. We have this communion with God through faith, Hebrews eleven six, and without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And as we grow in our faith, as we grow in our communion with God, we grow in this intimacy of a life of faith and prayer with God. And it should show itself in obedience. It should show itself in obedience. Not that obedience is a precursor to faith, but that it comes afterwards, that as we believe and as we trust, then we are more obedient. We bear fruit in alignment with God's will. James 2 says this, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from, show me your faith apart from my, I'm so sorry. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? And so we do live this life of obedience, obedience to him and his ways. Brothers and sisters, the call of the believer is to daily embrace the ministry and the message of the gospel. We have opportunities every single day because tomorrow is not promised. There is a sense of urgency. Tomorrow is not promised for others and for ourselves. And we are called to proclaim this gospel to a lost world, to proclaim the gospel to each other, and to proclaim the gospel to ourselves. That we must repent of our sins and believe in Jesus Christ. You know, sometimes I think it's too good to be true. Because I, I look back at my life and I, I look at, at how I lived before I knew God. And I think, man, this is, there are things there that, that are just that feel so messed up. They feel like this is way outside the grace of God, way outside the mercy of God, way outside the forgiveness of God. And sometimes it just feels like it would be good if I could be a Roman Catholic again, that, that I would just sit there and sort of just go through, at least for me, I'm not talking about every Roman Catholic, but I'm saying for myself, that I would sit there and just kind of go through these motions. Because if I could have these little tidbits, little signs along the way, that maybe I'm doing well, maybe that would show me that, that I'm forgiven. But we're called to have faith. You know, recently, and I, and I apologize, I know I've shared this, this with others, and uh, I don't believe I've shared it up here, so, but I can't even remember what I said five minutes ago. So, um, Recently, Michelle and I uh, and the kids, we, 
we went off and we were in Italy and uh, we got to spend some time there as a family, had some things, and we were in Rome and we met with this other pastor. This pastor reached out to me and said, hey, love to kind of take you guys around and, and show you guys around and kind of go through how re- even in the Reformation, there's signs of the Reformation early on here within Rome. You know? And so I was like, okay, that'd be great, Pastor Clay. And so he, he, we met up and uh, we met up with what are called uh, the sacred steps. And so these are steps that led up to Pontius Pilate's palace, and they, they took them from Jerusalem and placed them there uh, in the 4th century. And so it might be likely that Jesus walked these very steps during his passion, and people from all over come there, and they crawl up them, especially during the 1500s, and you would crawl up and receive an indulgence for a deceased loved one. And you, as I'm standing there, I'm watching. I'm watching as these individuals were, were crawling up these steps on their knees, it was slow, it took a long time, and I'm sure it was painful. And, you know, they're crawling up, and you could see this, this big mural, and it's, it's, it's of Christ on the cross. And early on, early on, I would, uh, as a convert to Christianity, I would, I would mock or be angry with stuff like this. I would be upset because I'm thinking, man, I was, I was deceived, I was told so many things, like, if I had just worked hard enough, if I had just cleaned myself up, if I had just done three more Hail Marys or four my, Our Fathers, I'd be fine, I'd be good to go. And Pastor Clay, though, says, lovingly, compassionately, says, we should mock them or be angry at them. If anything, our hearts should break for them because they are well-meaning people that truly believe and want to believe that their efforts will contribute for their salvation. This is not their fault. They have been misled by the Roman Catholic Church. You see, the Bible says that we can't work for our salvation, that we are at the bottom of the stairs, dead in our sins, unable to save ourselves, but that Jesus went up those very steps gave himself for us, paid the price we deserve to pay, and in that, we have salvation. You know, it's easy to kind of beat ourselves up. It's easy to beat others up when they sin. But all of us need this daily reminder of the opportunities that we have to repent, confess, and to have our faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This gospel that we hold on to this joy set before us and that the call of every believer is to daily, without fail, embrace the ministry and the message of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, I I praise you for your word and I praise you for just the salvation that we have in you. Lord, I praise you for, for the forgiveness that we have in you, the mercy that you have shown upon us, the love that you've showered upon us, Lord, to just repent and and believe feels like just too good to be true. It feels like such a lopsided uh, transaction. And yet it is, Lord, that you have done it all. There is nothing that we can bring to the table for our salvation. There is nothing that we can bring to the table for our own forgiveness. There is nothing that we can bring forth, Lord. All we have is you. We have your life your death, your resurrection. Lord, we have what you have accomplished on the cross. 
And Lord, forgive us for our sins. Forgive us for where we have, where we have gone wayward. Forgive us for when we have doubted. Forgive us for when we've, we've played the role of, of our own personal Savior, thinking of ourselves, if I could just fix this, if I could just change that, if I could just go through X, Y, and Z, that everything would be okay. Instead of turning to you and just say, Lord, here I am. I confess my sins to you. I am broken and humbled. Father, forgive me and I trust and I believe and I know in what you have done and who you are. And I praise you for your salvation. We ask this all in your name. Amen.